When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 266. Today's episode is all about the Buddhist Enneagram to find insight into your unique spiritual journey. Most of us were raised in a religion or a culture that starts with you're broken. There's something wrong with you and you should fix it. And then you'll get some goodies at the end of your life or somewhere later in your life. And who knows, maybe that's true. But the Buddhist view, and I would say the Enneagram view, also starts with the opposite. You are already whole and brilliant. And any doubt or thought to the contrary is a sign of confusion. So rather than trying to improve yourself, can you navigate this confusion? And the Enneagram points to nine forms of brilliance. It helps you to see what has been unbroken about you from the minute you got here. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'd like to share a review from Kate Rose 8 who says, This is motivating and uplifting. I love Melissa's practical tips, sense of humor, and how well-produced the show is. It always lifts me up and motivates me to power forward in life. I'm so glad to be your lifter-upper. You are mine today. Thank you so much for leaving this review. I really appreciate your time. What wisdom could we unleash if we intersect Buddhism and the Enneagram? While they might sound unrelated, if you think about it, Buddhism is a path of spiritual development leading to insight into the true nature of reality, while the Enneagram is basically a path of understanding or uncovering the true nature of ourselves. I'm gonna assume we've all heard of Buddhism, right? But we may not all be familiar with the Enneagram. Whenever I've done an episode on the Enneagram, people get really excited. It seems that those who do go deep into it become diehard believers in its wisdom. I have only just scratched the surface, but whenever I have had a reading or even a deep conversation with someone who's into it, I am always amazed. The thing I've noticed about personality typing is often it leads to either excuses for all of your personality quirks. And by quirks, I mean the things that you should probably improve. Example, when I was like 12 and I would read my horoscope, I remember just sinking into my stubbornness because that's just what a Taurus is. Or it leads to self-improvement because suddenly you see those shadow parts of yourself and you start to understand when to accept and work with those aspects of self and when to start rewiring neural pathways. An example of this for me was human design. I used to get really frustrated trying to work like the successful people that I knew. And then I learned, oh, hey, according to this, there's a way that I can be more productive without pushing so hard. Well, the Enneagram is a system of personality that describes people in terms of nine types, each with their own motivations, fears, and internal dynamics. And it's more of an emotionally focused system of understanding people honing in on your core emotional motivations and fears. In the little bit that I have worked with the Enneagram, I've actually had some pretty deep insights. Well, when we overlay this with Buddhism, the Enneagram gives powerful insight into your unique spiritual journey and how you can support others and theirs. So today we're going to weave together two ancient schools of wisdom, Buddhism and the Enneagram, to travel the nine paths of confusion to wisdom. Our guest is Susan Piver. She's a Buddhist teacher who spent nearly 30 years studying Tibetan Buddhism and the Enneagram in parallel. 
She masterfully weaves together these two ancient schools of wisdom and magic. So three key things we will learn are how to find your Enneagram type and why it's not as simple as a test or a checklist. The nine paths of warriorship for living a compassionate, fiercely awake life and the strengths and poisons to bring awareness to in order to evolve. I'll also be linking to a couple of my favorite tests for determining your type in the show notes at mindlove.com slash 266. But do keep in mind, this is not an end-all be-all. You'll hear in the episode why and how to go deeper and test if your outcome was actually correct. But I do find that it's a good starting point. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Susan Piver to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So what opened your mind to the correlations between the Enneagram and Buddhism? Well, I always read widely my whole life, like many people. And I started reading about the Enneagram about the same time I started reading about and studying Buddhism. So that's a long time ago, 30 years. And they both really caught my attention. And over the years, I started to notice that the deeper my Buddhist practice got, And the more it emphasized compassion and presence, the more I found myself relying on what I knew about the Enneagram to help keep my heart open, first to myself and then to others, and to have some sense of how to put aside my habitual patterns of mind that might otherwise obstruct me from being in the present moment. That makes a lot of sense. I have been dabbling in Buddhism. I, mm-hmm. I'm one of the type of people who I like to explore all the philosophies. And so sometimes I'm almost jealous of people who are like, this is the one I'm going for because <laughs> mm-hmm. they become yeah. masters of that. But I am constantly hearing about the Enneagram. I've done my own tests. I've interviewed uh, Enneagram experts, but it's been quite a while. So I'm glad to be revisiting this concept. Mm. But I'm curious, where does the Enneagram come from? Because so many times these, we look at it as like a personalities test and they're always popping up. Is this new? Is this old? But I know that the Enneagram is one of the ones that have been around for a long time. So tell us about it. Yeah, well, it's a really good question and a really important question. Where does this come from? And I have really gone a distance to try to find the answer. And I believe that the real answer is... Nobody knows. Uh, You don't have to try to believe something or follow a a person or it's available to everyone. So I'm always curious what other people say when asked about the origins of the Enneagram. But here's what I believe is known about it. So there's some sense that there was a desert father. So this is thousands of years ago named Ramon, Ramon Lull, who taught something like that sounds like the Enneagram. But I never found any such teachings, but maybe they're out there. That would be really fascinating. And then fast forward like thousands of years, the first person known in recorded history, I believe, to teach the Enneagram was a Greek-Armenian mystic named Gurdjieff from the 30s, 40s, and 50s of the last century. And he taught it to his students, but not as a system of personality, the way we think of it now, more as a system of understanding natural cycles in the world in the universe. When his students asked him, where did he, where was he taught the Enneagram? Where did he find it? He said, on a cave wall. 
So, okay, that's all I got on that. Go figure. Then if you fast forward like to the 1960s, a Bolivian guy named Oscar Ichazo basically transmitted the Enneagram, as far as I can tell, as we know it today. The Enneagram of personality, the first teacher in our lifetime, probably was Oscar Ichazo, who just died about a year or two ago. And forgive me if this is long, but there's no way to answer this question succinctly. He said that he learned the Enneagram from a wisdom cabal of elders who were self-appointed protectors of the world's wisdom traditions. Sounds crazy. Maybe it is. Who am I to say? Then he had a student named Claudio Naranjo, a Chilean psychiatrist, who had very profound experiences with Ichazo in the 60s and 70s. And then he went, ended up being a professor at UC Berkeley, and he taught his students there the Enneagram. Plus what he added to it, what he discovered was also true in the Enneagram, because I think the Enneagram is a discovery more than an invention. He invented what's called the subtypes, the three subdivisions within each type, which I think are unbelievably central to the Enneagram. So he told his students, you can't write this down, y'all, because it's too powerful. And it should be handed down teacher to student through personal relationship and conversation. And of course, that didn't happen. People wrote it down. And the first books about the Enneagram started being published in the late 80s and early 90s. And that is basically what is known about the Enneagram. I did go to Claudio Naranjo's house, by the way, to ask him where it came from. I somehow wormed my way in there. And he said something about a cabal. You know, I cannot, I don't know what that even means. And I said, well, why did people in the early days think the Enneagram came from Sufism? And he said, well, I just told them that to get them to shut up. <laughs> because they kept asking me, where does it come from? Where does it come from? So I just said Sufism. You know, with great teachers, they can say things that are not true because for various reasons. But anyway, that's what I got, Melissa. In this day and age, it seems so odd to say something like, well, you can't write it down because it's too powerful because we kind of mm -hmm. view information as the opposite. I was reading, I believe it was the book Spellbound from a past guest, and it was talking about just the evolution of the way that we have passed down knowledge mm -hmm. and what we've actually lost by basically putting it into different forms. And so when you write text, it's up for scrutiny. And so we actually feel like it's it's more true than when it's just passed down verbally, but it doesn't necessarily hold the same energy as the spoken word, I think. I agree. I totally agree. And in my Buddhist practice of 30 years, as I mentioned, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which is the mystical tradition in Buddhism, all the world's wisdom Schools have a mystical branch like Sufism for Islam and Kabbalah for Judaism and Vajrayana Buddhism, which is mostly synonymous with Tibetan Buddhism, although not completely, is the mystical tradition of Buddhism. So within the mystical traditions, there is a general sense that this is very potent. And because it's in the mystical realm, it can easily confound you and cause suffering for you. And for those in your life, because we use our conventional mind to understand the most profound wisdom teachings. And therefore, in Tibetan Buddhism, as well as other places, the most potent teachings are restricted, in some cases, to the student-teacher relationship. Like, you have to study with someone to learn these things. And of course, we all know what often results from that. Massive hijinks ensue, sexual misconduct and you know, cults and yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff. But nonetheless, when you are handed something very powerful that has the possibility of liberating your mind, let's say, or taking you out of the conventional realm, well, that's dangerous. You should have a guide. You should have a friend. You should have a teacher. And so my guess is that's what Naranjo meant about the Enneagram because when you study it, it's like getting a blueprint uh, to how people react. And it can be used 
to manipulate. And we don't want that, of course. So that's why it should be channeled or taught through particular channels. Does that make sense? It does. I've always said that if I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I definitely would have fallen into a cult. (laughs) Mm, I know. I could have happened to anyone. (laughs) I mean, so many of them draw you in with these really altruistic just beliefs and it seems like it's all about unity. But I don't think Mm. I would have lasted very long because I have a very heightened sense for gaslighting or for manipulation Mm. or for this one person is the god of all. But I'm curious, have in your studies of Buddhism or the Enneagram or both, have you worked with somebody that's guided in some of these deeper uh, parts of the knowledge of it? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MindLove. Just go to Indeed.com slash MindLove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MindLove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In your studies of Buddhism or the Enneagram or both, have you worked with somebody that's guided in some of these deeper uh, parts of the knowledge of it? With Buddhism, yes, absolutely. With the Enneagram, not in the same way, but over the the time that I've been studying Buddhism, I've had a very good fortune to meet real teachers, I would say, who have been extremely helpful to me. So yes, they're out there. When you're working with a a teacher in something like this to go deeper, if you can remember any of the instances, what do they add to that? Like Mm -hmm. compared to perhaps reading different studies or reading, because now we just have access to so much information that it's almost hard to believe that working with somebody in person can give Mm -hmm. you something more. Although any athlete would know that to be true, but it's more of a physical thing. And so what did you feel that was different or deeper when you actually worked with somebody to guide you in person? 
Yeah, I'm so happy you asked that. Such a good question. And my observation, and I'll give you an example from my own life, is the, the great teachers don't say very much to you. It's not like I'm like, hey, I'm having this relationship problem. What should I do? Or what should I study now? They don't do that. It's so simple. And being around them has an impact on you or me, depending on how you vibe with this person. So communication happens on so many levels. It's not just words, reading them or speaking them, because you take them into your own internal ecosystem and then you translate them through your own lens. So in a sense, everything you learn, you reify your pre-existing sense of self. That's an overstatement. But when I have been around really great teachers, they hardly say anything to me. And I'm not, not like, hey, what should I do, as mentioned? But when they do say things to me, it's like little mushroom clouds explode in my mind in a non-aggressive way. <laughs> oh, they said this simple thing to me and it just invoked this domino effect of insights. So I'll give you a very simple, simple example. And then it happens over and over again, this phenomena with teachers who are right for you. And again, there's no, maybe talk to them like once every few years or something. So I have had the good fortune to study with, I guess that's the right word, a great wisdom master named Tulku Tundup Rinpoche, who's Tibetan, quite old at this point. And he has always been there. He happens to live in Boston area, in the Boston area where I live. So over the years, when I've had difficulties, like with my own health or my father dying, or I wanted to understand a particular practice more deeply, I would ask him if I could come talk to him. And he said yes. And then he would just start saying things. And the whole time he's talking, I'm like, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I, I don't understand, but I'm just listening and allowing what he's saying to sort of surround me, as it were. And he'd give me tea and cookies, and then I would leave. And then I would notice that my practice always deepened. Now, it could have been a coincidence. Here's a more particular example. Once I was telling him about some, some problem I was having that I thought was impacting my meditation practice negatively. And it was very, very important, only I cannot remember what it was. <laughs> no idea what it was. But anyway, I was telling him about this big problem that I was having and despairing of ever being able to accomplish the full Buddhist path which means becoming enlightened, whatever that means. I don't know. So I, I'm like, how can I speed this up? How can I go further? How can I dispense with these obstacles? And all he said to me was, don't think about how far you have to go. Think about how far you have come. Now, that's a very simple statement. But when he said it, everything changed. Not in a mystical wizard hat kind of way. I'm just like, oh, yeah. And if you you could say this to yourself, Melissa, I'm sure you, like everyone, you think, oh, I've got so far to go on the things that are important to me. But instead of focusing on that, focus on how far you have come. And over the years, since he said that to me, I have switched my mindset repeatedly from a despairing sense of I'll never make it, which is probably true, to, well, I have come very far. And when I focus on I have come very far, I feel empowered. And when I focus on how far I have to go, I feel disempowered. So that's a very simple thing. Don't think about how far you have to go and so on. But somehow that changed my whole relationship to my practice. So you can't draw a direct line. He said this and then that happened or she. But through these communications, things begin to shift. I've been in a very, very spiritual place the last month. And I've just been hit by all of these synchronicities and that's how I know that I'm on the right track. Like I totally attribute them to God, to source, whatever that higher power is that uh, an individual connects with. Mm -hmm. But it just seems like it's all the time now. <laughs> and maybe I'm just mm -hmm. recognizing it. And this was one of those moments for me, literally this morning, I've just been having a difficult time. I wouldn't say difficult. I think it's just challenging in this transition in general. I became a mom 19 months ago. Oh, I also wow. have a business to run. I'm also pregnant again. I'm at Yikes. the five month wow. mark and wow. my pregnancies tend to be extremely nauseating. And so just four days ago, I finally stopped throwing up like a bunch of times a day. <laughs> so, wow. so I'm feeling pretty good. Anyways, I decided it would be a good idea to like, I wanted to have somebody I can talk to regularly that doesn't know me. And so I used BetterHelp. I found the perfect therapist and I was just kind of talking to him about surface level stuff. It was our first session. And he, he said to me at one point, he's like, do you 
spend a lot of time focusing on how far you've come. Oh my goodness. And I, <laughs> and I like tears started running down my eyes because it's a practice I know. Like I have this podcast. I've said it a hundred times on this podcast. And sometimes just hearing it from the right person or at the right time or both just hits differently. And mm-hmm. I've done that practice many times before, but it's been a while. And so mm-hmm. now I'm in this whole transition and I'm beating myself up on both sides because I can't give as much to my business as I was before. And then I feel like I'm just failing as a mom at certain moments and mm-hmm. failing as a business owner at certain moments. And I don't feel that all the time, but I realize when I'm stressed, when I really drill it down, I'm like, oh, you're, you're actually beating yourself up on both sides of this. Mm-hmm. And so I actually spent the morning writing how far I've come again, but there's wow. been stuff in the last two years and then you brought it up. And so I'm just like, yes, that is... Uh, the universe, thank you for that. Oh but my I'm goodness! Also reminded of uh, I have been diving into Paul Selig's spiritual teachings, and he channels what he calls the guides. And a big lesson in their newest book is talking about how it's being versus doing uh, is one of the main kind of uh, the drilling down to the lesson. But it's really talking about how our planet's going to like the evolution of our planet coming up and all of these really specific teachings. But the one that I have been holding on to and really trying to focus on is that it's not necessarily about what I do that gives the value. It's how I be, as they say. Mm. And so that being reminds me of those monks. And the guides had said at one point that, I guess they've said that the energy that those monks living in caves that are just diving into Buddhism, people wonder, well, what can you be doing in solitude for the planet? Like you're all about peace and whatever, but you're just alone. And just the energy that they carry has the has the potential to change the whole world around them or to uplift the energy of the planet. And so mm-hmm. it was those two things that were coming to mind as you were speaking of that, the teachers just being at the energy that they hold can create that transformation. And then that one simple thing that also hit me on this very day. So thank you for all the synchronicities. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so great. And yeah, I think the key is a couple of times you said things like, I forgot that, or I've done it myself, but I haven't thought about it in a while. And that quality of somebody else, in this case me, but could be anyone, saying something or you read something and your response is, oh, I knew that, but I forgot I knew it. Or I knew it, but I didn't know I knew it. That's how it seems that these teachings work. They're already in your mind. And anyone that tries to get in there and say, you did it wrong or you should do it this way, well, you need to leave because the wisdom teacher is within Yes. And so often, even when something seems like completely new information to this human, (laughs) the meat suit Mm -hmm. that we're in, I still feel as though it is a remembering uh, because I think our true self, our soul knows these really important truths. And so whether we learned about them three years ago or we don't feel like we've learned about them in this lifetime, I look at it as like, oh, yes, that's it's resonating because it's tapping into the part of me that already knew this because it's truth. And so going back to the Enneagram, I know that so often we get these new little tests, we take it like a personality test and we're like, oh, cool, I'm a seven. And then we like read the description and move on. But you say that using the Enneagram is not as simple as just using a checklist or any other form of like pre-made assessments to determine your type. So how should we use the Enneagram? Really important question. So the first thing that I would say is there is no test. There is no test. That said, there are many tests, but there is no reliable test. Like if you want to know your Myers-Briggs or your Colby's or your Strength Finders or any other system, they have reliable instruments. And if you fill out those forms, you'll get in all likelihood, an accurate answer. Not so with the Enneagram tests. I'm sure there are Enneagram teachers out there that will argue with me, but that's cool. There's no good test. My suggestion is take all the tests, all the free tests and see, use what comes out of those tests as data points, not answers to sort of inspire your investigation. So for me, the Enneagram, and it took me a long time to figure out my type. So one must be patient. It quelled to a very large degree, my self-aggression, 
what's wrong with you? You should do this better. You should be a different person. Why can all those people do it and you can't do it? And you do this thing that no one values and blah, blah, blah. All the things that I'm not alone, of course, in saying these things to myself, it helped me accept myself because I saw that I have a particular wiring, for lack of a better word, and I could stop trying to be who I thought I ought to be or who the world told me I ought to be. And that is not a small thing, but it's also a huge thing because that is the gateway to compassion for others. It's the gateway to authenticity. It's the gateway to your brilliance is self-acceptance and self-knowledge. So I believe that that's the way that we could use the Enneagram to begin with. And then even though we can't really type other people because we don't know, we can have a sense. But I, if I think of someone's a seven, I try not to say to myself, they're a seven, but to say, I feel the energy of seven because they might, I, what do I know? So if I feel the energy of seven and I'm a four, which I am, that can help me recognize what will create a communication bond between us and what will make it more difficult. So how, what is more awesome than that? I can, I can communicate with people that I think I never could communicate with that person because I can see them not through my lens, but to some degree apart from my projections. So instead of seeing others through the lens of my projections as a four, I see them without those projections on good days. And I don't know how you can love or like without that. Otherwise, you're just in a relationship with yourself otherwise. So who are you apart from who I think you are is a great use of the Enneagram. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. That makes so much sense. And having a tool, I've never heard it explained that way, but it's so good because so often what we see in other people are the projections of ourselves. We like this because we value it in ourselves. We are triggered by this because that's the part of ourselves that we have this deep disdain for. (laughs) So to have this sort of template in order to see somebody through a slightly different lens. My husband and I have always talked about how that is one of the best parts of even forming deep relationships with people is now like I have a relationship with him and I know the things that he will do often. And so I can be like, well, what would Shane do? And then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I'm seeing things through his lens in a way that I never would before. And it's not something that I really experienced until I started having really deep relationships with people. And now I can tap into all of that. And Napoleon Hill talked about something similar in his, he kind of, basically coined the idea of a mastermind, but he would use the greats like Abraham Lincoln and and yeah. uh, create their little circle of mastery. And it's like, okay, well, what will that person do? And so it helps to really 
learn about that person. But that learning about that person is so difficult if you're always doing it through your own lens. So a tool for that seems really powerful. This is a tool for that. Exactly. And Napoleon Rich, who wrote Think and Grow Rich, like in Napoleon Hill, is that his name? Yes. Didn't he write Think and Grow Rich in like the 1930s or something? (laughs) That's like the first law of attraction book, I think, followed by many, many others. So a short example with a seven, I used to work for someone who was a seven and I was doing creative projects because they're kind of a little bit cutting edge and I would run into unexpected problems. And I would say to him, I'm having a problem. I want to talk to you about it. And he would shut down. Someone said to me, I have a problem. I'm like, okay, everybody out. I'm just focusing on you and your problem. I'm very interested in your problem. Let's let's get to it. But he did not do that. And then when I realized he was a seven who are focused on ideas and possibilities and vision, and problems are always a distraction from vision and possibility because you got to look at the present, what's happening right here. Instead of telling him I'm having a problem, I said to him, I have an idea and I would like your feedback. And that just opened the door for us to be able to have actual conversations. And I would tell him my problem, but as couched as an idea, not to be manipulative, but just to get somewhere together. And that's a tiny thing, but the Enneagram does that on steroids. It helps you create connections in a very interesting and skillful, I would say, way. So want to know what's funny about that example? I read it in your book mm-hmm. and... I believe myself to be a seven. Mm -hmm. I have taken a couple of different tests and they always land on seven. It does really resonate, but I will admit that I can go deeper into the Enneagram. So that's just what I'm landing on now and we'll see as I do go deeper. But Mm -hmm. a lot of it relates to me, right? Well, a couple of years ago, my husband and I stayed with a friend and it's, it's like a whole family that we're friends with and the older father is just a character. Like he is his own kind of person that I've never met. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. don't really know a lot of people like him. Although the other people I do know like him tend to be highly successful as well. But he was like that where we were supposed to be helping him with a project and we were coming in as the people with a lot of experience in this type of project and kind of teaching his kids how to, the insights of it because they had just kind of dived into marketing and websites and all that. So it was the exact same problem as the what you just mm. <laughs> said, where we're like sitting here saying, well, okay, well, these are the things we need to watch out for when growing this, or these are the things that we should not have on the website, blah, blah, blah. Well, we ended up realizing about eight days in that we can only flip it to positives. Otherwise it goes, it's like hit with so much resistance. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, oh, he was a seven two. No wonder I was so triggered by him <laughs> because Amazing. I see the same thing in myself, but it's in a totally different way. Like I don't get angry if people come to me with problems, but I do shut down a little bit. And I've worked on on it a lot without mm-hmm. knowing <laughs> my Enneagram type, but mm-hmm. uh, it is something where I'm like, okay, I'm I'm feeling this tension. Let me breathe through it. Let me look at it through another perspective. And I have all these tools for it, but it was just funny reading that the way you described it as like this person. And suddenly I could feel like this energetic barrier just dissipate between me and this person who I've kind of held at this with this particular viewpoint. And it it reminds me of, I wasn't using the Enneagram at this time, but one of the things that you say when we're kind of using types with other people is you said that when we use the Enneagram as a way of labeling others so they won't scare us so much, all the lights go out. And mm-hmm. there was this moment when I was reading that that I did that to him. I was like, oh, you're <laughs> a seven. Like, that's why you're a little bit crazy, but you've got these good qualities. And I'm like, well, no, I can't do it from that level of energy. Otherwise, it kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. I, yeah. And of course, we all do that. I do that all the time. Like, oh, now I get who you are, I think. But I, now I see that you're a seven and that's why you do these things and this will enable me to connect with you more deeply. It's always a good thing to add, I think. And that's great that you work on yourself that way. Sevenness of yourself, whether you call it sevenness or something else, is big. And the, the, each type, as I'm sure you know, has a passion, which in the Enneagram is not good. And the passion of seven, the, the fuel that runs the machine, is called gluttony doesn't mean you're a glutton. I'm clearly not saying that, but it means whatever feels good, I would like more of that. Because if there's any gap in things that feel good, I might see things that feel bad. So let's have some more of whatever this seven thinks is good. And the virtue is called sobriety, which 
is some sense, I think, of what you're talking about, which is when there's joy and delight to be had, I'm in. I am all in. And when it's not there, I'm all in with what is. And that's sort of a view of sobriety in the Enneagram. And so knowing that, at least for me on my type, the passion is called envy, which means longing, and the virtue is equanimity. So when I feel longing coming up in myself, like, oh, I wish I had these things I don't have or whatever form it might take, I can think, oh, yeah, okay, I have a right to feel that, feel that way. But it's also a red flag that I'm triggered. And so let me look more deeply at how I can be equanimous with what is, not to force myself, but it gives me a sort of red flag that is useful for my development as gluttony or the other passions would be for other types. What a great way to view acceptance, just being all in with what is. That's <laughs> the only choice we have, actually, Melissa. How can we be all in with what is not? Is not? I feel like at this stage in life, I'm understanding acceptance on a new level. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's just another layer every single year. But it's yeah. funny that you say gluttony because I am. I don't take offense by that. And a little of my past is... I had a very severe case of bulimia for 10 years. Oh and so a big part of my growth has been understanding where that just constant seeking or constantly trying to fill myself comes mm-hmm. from and mm-hmm. learning regulation and learning to find fulfillment from other areas. But I've had a lot of different addictions. I was addicted to Adderall for a while. I mm-hmm. drank too much for a long time. I just finally gave up alcohol completely last year. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, a huge part of my self-growth, I would call sobriety and not, I didn't go the AA route. I don't necessarily say I live a sober life. I still enjoy cannabis here and there, but (laughs) or the (laughs) like the little ways of expanding my mind. And so I'm kind of also in a stage of my life where I'm working on less labels because the labels really helped me for a period. And now I'm really trying to see who I am without the labels. But a big part of that and a constant thing that I have to tap into every single day is is that, I guess, I don't know if it's self-discipline, regulation, kind of a combination of all of them. It's It feels a little bit different than that because I don't look at it as a restriction. I look at it as being really in tune with what was driving that desire or that need or that behavior and trying to heal any wounds that I find and then basically coming to a place of fulfillment or or peace without the things that I, my small self believes myself to need. So I definitely resonate with that. It sounds like you're on a great path. It it really, really does. It it sounds so good. And when you mentioned self-discipline, what I think of, because we all want to be, have more discipline and so on. And often we think it means making ourselves do things we don't want or something like that. But in the Buddhist view, where discipline is very, very important, it just means coming back. Come back from the trip that you just went on. Come back from wherever you went that is preventing you from paying attention to what is. And when you come back to this moment or your intention or your wound that you may be feeling in this moment, then you're you're getting somewhere. You're navigating something really hard without being harsh toward yourself. Does that sound right to you? You filled another gap for me, Susan. I've been writing (laughs) self-discipline down because I've been doing affirmations every day and Mm -hmm. I am self-disciplined, but I have a little, there's just a little bit of resistance to that word because I don't like the word discipline in general. (laughs) And so I viewed it as, as the way I've reframed it in my mind is like, instead of getting yourself to stop all of these things, it's it's getting myself to do what I really know is important and not being distracted by the things that aren't. But I love the idea of coming back because it reminds me of what I said earlier about kind of the remembering. It's like all of this stuff is already inside of me. I'm already, this has been a really important teaching for me in the last couple of years during this transition as a mom is like, I am already whole and complete and perfect as I am without the need to constantly grow or change or build. Mm. And I love to grow and change and build. And so that's kind of been a big shift for me in the last 10 years where in the beginning, I just thought I was always leveling up my character. What else can I learn Mm -hmm. so that I can pack it in and be as valuable as a human as I can be? Mm -hmm. And while I think there's something to that, I think I've really had to reframe 
the way that I say that to myself because in that view, it's like I was lacking to start and I need to build up for the worth. Whereas now it's like, no, I'm, I'm kind of chipping away at all of the things that I've accumulated over my lifetime and remembering the truth that was there from the beginning, my inherent worth, my innate wholeness, rather mm -hmm. than trying to get there. I totally, I dig your voodoo, Melissa. <laughs> I, to I totally get what you're saying from my own perspective. And most of us were raised in a religion or a culture that says, starts with you're broken. There's something wrong with you and you should fix it. And then you'll get some goodies at the end of your life or somewhere later in your life. And who knows, maybe that's true. But the Buddhist view, and I would say the Enneagram view, also starts with the opposite. You are already whole, just as you say, and brilliant. And any doubt or thought to the contrary is a sign of confusion. So rather than trying to improve yourself, can you navigate this confusion? And the Enneagram points to nine forms of brilliance that one of them is yours, one of them is mine. And it helps you to see what has been unbroken about you from Jump Street, you know, from the minute you got here. I, I find that very inspiring personally. I love the way you lay out the nine paths of warriorship in your book uh, because they're worded a little bit differently. But for me, it, it's just, it resonated a little bit more. Can we briefly go over the gist of each of these paths? Yeah. And I call it the Buddhist Enneagram is the name of the book. And the subtitle is Nine Paths of Warriorship. And by warriorship, I hope it's clear that I don't mean aggression or dominating others or being the best or anything like that. What I mean is it takes a lot of courage to see who you really are. It takes courage to reach out to other people and then navigate the challenges that you will invariably find. It takes courage to make a commitment to being the best person you can be so you can be a benefit to this world. Those things take a lot of courage. That's why I call it warriorship, not just me, but in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition can be called warriorship. So each of the nine Enneagram types has a form of warriorship. I made this up, so everybody should take it with a giant grain of salt. But one, I who are the ethical champions of the Enneagram, I call the warrior of exertion because they never give up trying to make things right. Two, which is the type that can feel what's going on inside of you within themselves for better or, and for worse, I call the warrior of love. Threes who have a genius for navigating the phenomenal world without getting hung up by emotional things, I call the warrior of accomplishment because they can make things happen. And if you want to make your dream come true in this world, not in a dream world, they can do that. Four, the type on the Enneagram that feels everything that's happening outside of themselves as something that is happening within themselves, I call the warrior of poetics because fours can see the poetics, the poetry, the mystery of what is happening in a way that the other types can't, warrior poetics. Five, on the mental triad, the type that loves to learn and loves to contemplate what they have learned, maybe not so interested in sharing it, I call the warrior of clear seeing because they have a capacity for insight because of their curiosity that is unparalleled. Six, the type that is a very attuned to danger and wanting to protect themselves and others and this world, I call the warrior of truth because they're always trying to look behind the curtain. Is what you said true? Are you really who you say you are? Let me... Uh, find out what is true. Nothing on face value here. Seven, the type on the Enneagram that is attuned to possibility and vision and joy, I call the warrior of magic because the other eight of us are like, oh my God, things are not going so well. And that's true. But sevens can always remind us that there's a reason to be joyful. And that is a kind of magic. It's like by magic, a, a spell of darkness can lift when you're in the presence of a seven. Eight, the type that is very interested in being the boss, in control, being the most competent, being the strongest person in the room, which they usually are, I call the warrior of power because they have a capacity for being power, 
hurtful. And when that's used for their own personal gain, of course, it's treacherous and worse. But when it can be put in service of protection for others who are more vulnerable, which is everybody, basically, when it comes to AIDS, then they're warriors of power. They can wield it with skillfully, with intelligence. That's extremely important. And then nines, the final type, the type that can see everyone's point of view, can really go with you where you are and how you see things, but they may have trouble finding their own point of view. I call the warrior of presence because they have a capacity to be present with you when you're saying the sky is blue and present with me when I'm saying, no, it's pink. They can see what through your eyes in a way that the other eight can't. So that's a powerful skill when it's used from a place of inner balance. So the warrior of presence is the ninth type of warrior. When I did a few different tests, I'll put some links in the show notes for people that are interested in trying out some of the tests, but like Susan said, take it with a grain of salt and and use it as information, but do your own self-reflection and and read to figure out what you really resonate with and, and see if it stays that way over time. But what I got was seven, three, and nine. And on the surface level, those do seem to really really kind of hit home with uh, Hmm. different aspects of my personality and and just who I am. Hmm. But how do we use this when we find it out? Now, you know, you talk about the facets of the Enneagram, the triads and the two poisons. What do those mean? Yeah, triads, three poisons and three subtypes or instinctual drives. So seven, three, and nine, great. Okay, those are great data points. First thing to note about those is that they are in different triads. The Enneagram is three groups of three, according to center of intelligence. We all possess each of these forms of intelligence, but for each of us, one of them is predominant. And eight, nine, and one are on the intuitive triad, the instinctive triad, and they tend to get angry when things don't go their way. Some of us respond to difficulty with anger. Okay. Two, three, and four, the emotional triad. And you so you came up with nine in the instinctual triad, three in the emotional triad are people that don't have any more or less emotion than anyone else, but use their emotions to navigate the world, to understand what things are and who people are and how to make decisions, rely on feelings. And then five, six, and seven, seven was your third number, is in the mental triad. People that use the thinking mind and reason and logic and systems and research to make their way through the world. So if the intuitive people get angry, the emotional people, the emotions go out of whack when they're in a bad place. They get depressed or grasping, needy. And the mental people, five, six, seven, when things don't go their way, they think more. They think harder. They think faster. So what if this, or what if they said that, or why did I put that there? I should have put it over here, that kind of thing. And and in the Enneagram, that's called anxiety. So we all get anxious. We all get angry. We all have lots of feelings that can go out of whack. But if I was trying to choose between three, seven, and nine, I would start with those. Which triad do I fit with? Do I feel more like a mental person or an emotional person or so on? Now, a further uh, refinement is not seven, but three and nine are in the center of their triad. Eight, nine, one, two, three, four. The central number, three and nine, are disconnected from their core way of being. So threes don't know what they feel. So they go on appearances. Nines don't know which of their intuitions to trust. So they rely on your intuitions. Sevens are not disconnected from their core quality. They overexpress it or exteriorize mental energy through ideas and plans and visions and so on. So those are just some tidbits. But if I may, the most helpful way to find your type, and I say this with a lot of confidence although there may be other people who think otherwise, that's cool too. They can be confident in what they think, is to investigate along with type what is called the subtypes, which is different than the three kinds of intelligence. The three subtypes are the three instinctual drives that we all share. We all have all of them, but one of them is predominant for you and one for me and everyone. So the first drive is the drive for self-preservation. We've all got it. We're wired this way. We 
We want to feel safe. We want to have food to eat. We want to think, oh, I'll probably have enough money or I don't, so I'm terrified. We want to live somewhere safe. Now, if this is your predominant drive, you are concerned with what am I going to eat and where am I going to sleep? And what if it's too cold and I better bring snacks? And, you know, these are silly examples, but you're thinking about these details of my personal being. The second drive is called the social drive, which is where do I fit in this world? I want a place. I want to belong to a tribe or a community or a political party or a neighborhood, whatever it might be. So the predominant attention doesn't go to where are my snacks and what if I'm cold, goes to who am I to these other people? Do they accept me or not? And how do I feel about that? These are very broad overgeneralizations. And then the third instinctual drive is called the sexual drive or intimate drive, which doesn't, doesn't mean the person is just focused on sex. It means they're focused on one-to-one connections in wherever they go and whoever they're with, romantically, creatively, collegially. They want to connect with a person uh, and share an experience. So, so there's three kinds of threes, three kinds of sevens, three kinds of nines. I'm sorry if this is getting too opaque, but you could be a self-preservation three or a social three or a sexual three, self-preservation seven, a social seven, and so on. So until I knew the subtypes, I just skipped over four every time I read about fours. Uh, I don't relate to any of that. I'm not a tragic romantic. I'm not a drama queen. I'm not, oh, my feelings, where's my fainting couch? I'm not like that. So I just skipped it over until I read about self-preservation four, because that's my strongest subtype, self-preservation. And I was like, oh my God, they have found me. They've been reading my diaries or something. That was me. I am a self-preservation four, which is called reckless. And it doesn't mean I'm reckless, but when I was young, I I was risk-taking, much more risk-taking. So if we're looking at the sevens, and I'll keep this short, I promise, self-preservation seven is called friends or family, which doesn't sound very self-preservation-y, but they draw their feelings of safety through being connected to friends and family, okay? Social seven is called sacrifice. These sevens are just as... uh, magical and big thinking and visionary as the other sevens, but they have responsibilities. So they sacrifice their Don Quixote-ness or their adventurousness to be a good parent or a good friend or whatever it might be. And then the sexual seven is called fascination, which like all the sexual subtypes is focused on love and connection. Sexual sevens become fascinated by a person or an idea until problems start to come up which they always do. And then they want to find something else to be fascinated by. So anyway, that was long, but without knowing the subtypes, just thinking, oh, maybe I'm a seven, not so easy. But those three kinds of sevens, they're different from each other. And that's where all the gold is, I would say. I'm so excited to dive in and like really type myself or or try to figure out what that is. And it's been difficult for me to, I don't know, just any... Anything that sort of captures my essence has Mm -hmm. been interesting to work with in the last 10 years because I've made so many changes to my life in like especially the last 15 years. And so I look at things that I little tests that I did 10 years ago and the answers are totally different because my Mm. focus is different or I might have healed some of those wounds that were really dominant in my life at that time. And Mm. so right now what I related to the most in the seven was probably the sexual seven. I hop around to things. I'd have to go Mm. deeper into what that really means for me. But even in uh, some of the some of the other descriptors, like the nine, the warrior of presence, I'm interested to kind of dive in again and see if that still holds true. Because one of the things that I realized over the years was just, I do relate to being an empath. And I didn't know how, for a long time, I didn't realize how much that I was basing everything that I felt on the people around me. And I I could feel what they felt. And so if they were angered by something, I was angered by something. And so my 20s, mm. my my 20s were just a lot of discerning, like kind of getting caught in the tidal wave of other people's emotions, other people's desires. And so a big part of my growth was actually sitting down and figuring out like, who am I <laughs> outside That's of so other great. people? Who am I? Like, what do I feel about this? What do I actually love? And what don't I like? 
regardless that's, of what people around me feel. That's the, that's a huge question. It is. Do, do you identify with the sexual subtype in general more than social or self-preservation? Uh, I guess I'm not sure what which one I related to more. I know with the mm-hmm. with the warrior of magic, just your description of that felt that was the description that I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that I see aspects of myself mm-hmm. in that one. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I I feel really excited for you for this exploration. It's so empowering to look at yourself just in the ways you describe without the Enneagram. And then with the Enneagram as a further support, it's uh, fruitional. It, it brings things to fruition more quickly, I would say, than not knowing the Enneagram for me and not just me, but for some people, not every one thing is not for everyone. But if the Enneagram or something like it speaks to you, it's extremely valuable. Right, because it took me years to make those little realizations that I had without the Enneagram. So to have just like, oh, this is what may be resonating with you. Let's go a little bit deeper. How does this feel? I feel like I probably could have saved myself maybe seven years of (laughs) turmoil in my 20s. (laughs) So once we find our type, I did mention how I've gone through a lot of changes. And so for me, it feels like a type would change. But with the Enneagram, when you find your true type, it doesn't change. Why is that? Mm-mm. I really don't know why. I mean, but it seems not to. I mean, you have relationships to other numbers that amplify in good times and diminish you in bad times. But that's what all those lines are on the Enneagram is pointing to integration and disintegration points. But it's like, where were you born, Melissa? Where, where were you born? This Northern California. Do you okay. need the city? <laughs> no, that's okay. So need my social ever, security number? Should I say? I, I, I'm not going to ask for your firstborn because uh, that's, they're too young. Um, you will never not be born in, North, in Northern California. You will always have been born there. But you can go anywhere you want. But you're going to bring that with you. So that's how I think of the Enneagram. And you have a baby and you're having another baby. Congratulations. Do they feel different as you carry them? No. No, they don't? I mean, I feel like I, it's hard to say. He's only 19 months and I feel like I get to know him on a deeper level. But it's more about what we talked about before where I don't feel like, although I do joke, he's like a different baby today. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. it's, it's more like, exactly what we talked about before where it's like I'm chipping away or he's he's learning to express himself more so I'm discovering more about who he always was but it's not necessary mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that he's changing yeah what i mean is in your body before mm-hmm. he was born how do these two babies do they feel the same within you i know it's a very big question but you know i'd have to sit with that but it's been hard to discern beyond the nausea. Yeah. <laughs> Fair like, enough. Good point. I mean, they, yeah, they've made me want to throw up for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Bless your heart. Well, I guess I'm pointing to that because often people say, I'm not a mom, so I, I can't say, but babies feel different. One baby, one pregnancy feels different than the other. And why? I don't know. But oh, there's some that makes essential sense. quality that I think could be related is what I think of as the essential quality in the Enneagram. Yes. Okay. I understand. I thought you meant through the journey. Did I feel like they were the same, like from month two, was it the same as to month nine? Uh, But yeah, comparatively, they're very different pregnancies, very different energies. I was very emotional my first pregnancy. And for some reason, yes, I still have bouts where I'll burst into tears, but it's totally different where I felt more out of control before. I feel very at peace this pregnancy. And, you know, it's hard to tell because part of me attributes it to the growth that I've done over the mm-hmm. the work that I've done over the last two years. But it could very well just be the energy that I am carrying. So I'm excited to find out when I give birth. <laughs> yes, I'm excited for you. And it's probably all true. All your the self-examination that you've done and this is a different person. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, for listeners that are interested in diving deep into their uh, their Enneagram type and, and learning how that could relate to many of these Buddhist philosophies, where's the best place for them to connect with you and to find your book? Oh, thank you. Um, well, you can find my book at any online retailer, a few bookstores, but mostly online retailers. And 
my website is called the Open Heart Project, which is an online mindfulness community uh, where we study things together and practice together and, and so on. That's the best place to find me. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 266. Your challenge for this week is to determine your Enneagram type. This is the first step and there's layers and layers to peel away once you do. So I'm going to leave a few links to my favorite tools to find your Enneagram type. But remember, as Susan said, there is no one reliable test. So if you land on a result that doesn't really feel like you, don't disregard it immediately. There might be truth in it that you're not willing to see, or there might be an aspect of that type that you're just not uncovering quite yet. And so sit with it, sit with your top choices. If you take multiple of the tests and they all land on the same one, maybe give it a little bit more weight, but hold in your mind or on a piece of paper, any of the types that seem to resonate and and sit with them until you feel sure. Because once you do find your type, there's so much truth to be found and it can help you find those shadow layers of yourself, your shadow selves, some of your, I use air quotes when I say weaknesses. The way I like to look at them instead is the things that your soul came here to work on. That's how I've been reframing all of my weaknesses or my challenges, it's like, ah, I'm just going to be this way forever. Why is this so hard for me and it's not hard for other people? And when I look at it as this is what my soul came here to work on, it becomes more of a path than a blockage, a route that I'm taking rather than something that's obstructing me. And I do think that the way that we look at things, the visuals that come to mind when we think of a metaphor affects our relationship to it. And so keep that in mind whenever you're doing any work, because sometimes just a simple reframing or maybe somebody else's perspective of something will open up our minds to a different way to approaching it. So let me know what your Enneagram type lands on. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. And I'm going to be doing this work too, because the Enneagram has always fascinated me. I just have not gone deep enough to really get the fruits that it has to offer. And I'm committed to doing that now. So I want to know what yours lands on, how you feel about it, what you're discovering about yourself. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If this episode is resonating with you and you want to share it, please take a screenshot and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast. If you love, love, love Mind Love, the best way to support it is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get early release episodes, ad-free listening, and you also get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only available for premium members. And you get it all in this adorable, exclusive private feed that you import to your favorite podcast player one time, and then it's automatically updated You'll see new episodes as they come in and you can scroll back and find all of those premium episodes that are only available to you. So that's at mindlove.com slash premium. Another way to support is by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You all know how much I love those. And you can also find any of my sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. Thank you.